Yeah, indeed. Well, the year was 1867, and a Swedish industrialist, chemist, inventor by the name of Alfred Nobel patented an amazing invention that would revolutionize, really, the industrial world. He named it dynamite after the Greek word dunamis, which means power. Dynamite is, a, is an interesting uh, substance, product. Nobel figured out that you could take nitroglycerin, which is exceedingly powerful and yet unstable, and that you could create a paper tube filled with diatomaceous earth, which is the stuff you find in your pool filter, and you saturate it with nitroglycerin, and all of a sudden it is now a stable uh, substance. It can be handled safely. And that product is then detonated with a blasting cap and creates a tremendous amount of explosive force which really fueled industrial expansion and made possible massive building projects, the ability to dig canals and and dam up rivers and do all sorts of things that we take for granted lie in the power of dynamite. Because the dynamite is, is so powerful, though, it has, a, has sort of a twofold potential. It can and certainly has been used for good, but it also has the potential to be used for evil, placed into the wrong hands and applied to the wrong purpose. Christian freedom is kind of like dynamite kind of like dynamite. Christian freedom in the hands of the immature is a very dangerous thing. It can be used as a covering for our sin. I'm free in Christ to do sort of whatever I want, and that whole notion of freedom then becomes a a way for people to sin merrily away. The Apostle Paul warns us in Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 13 uh, that very thing. He says there to the, to the churches of Galatia, he says, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So that explosive idea of Christian freedom is not to be used as a covering for fleshly desires. But Christian freedom, on the other hand, for the mature is a very, very necessary idea for clearing away the rubble of legalism. It needs to be blasted out of the way. We have titanic freedoms in Christ. But so often we are afraid to use them. Historically, the the church has been so concerned about the implications of Christian freedom in the hands of the immature that 
that they have sought to establish various fences around our freedom in order to define what is acceptable and godly behavior. This is done initially with a, with a good motive, I think, just to, to guard against sin, to restrain sin, to promote holiness and, and godly behavior, and to bring glory to God. But what inevitably happens is that over time, human opinion, human wisdom sort of metastasizes and, and it overcomes God's law and adds on to God's law to the place where the church itself falls into the trap of legalism. And for the last 2,000 years, if you read church history, you can see repeatedly how this happens. I'll give you just one example, and it happened very early on, and that is in the early 2nd century, so the last living apostle John passed away sometime around A.D. 95, and so it wasn't very long after that, maybe 30, 35 years, where we find a, a document called the Didache, which means the teaching, and it is an anonymous document. But it is a document that that lays out Christian practice, you know, how to live the Christian life in some practical areas. And the Didache at at its time was very much valued and, and reverenced in the church. There were even some who claimed that it had the status of Holy Scripture, although it clearly does not. But in the Didache itself, uh, in their attempts to to sort of uh, categorize and and lay out the Christian life in certain areas, they found themselves slipping into what we would call legalism. I'll give you an example I have for you here. uh, Chapter 7 of the Didache, and it concerns the issue of baptism. And this is what was written. Concerning baptism, in this manner, baptize. So they want to talk about the, 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 the means and mechanism by which we are to fulfill what Christ has commanded, and that is to be baptized. So when you have gone over these things, baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit in running water. If you do not have running water, baptize in other water. If you are not able to use cold water, use warm. And by the way, all those who uh, you know, think our water in our baptistry is too cold just shows you how we've gotten soft, right? So if you're not able to use cold water, use warm. And if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And before baptizing or baptism, the one baptizing and the one to be baptized should fast, as well as any others who are able. And you should instruct the one being baptized to fast one or two days before. So you can see how in a, in a zeal to, to promote godliness and, and seemliness and order and so forth, that which Christ had given, which was a very simple command, right, to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, has turned into this rather elaborate process where we have to talk about what temperature the water is, what kind of water, 
and uh, whether we fast and don't fast and who fasts and how long they fast and, and so forth. So you can see how these encrustments build up on a very simple biblical command. I'll give you another one. Chapter 8. This one uh, deals with fasting and prayer. Let not your fasts be with those of the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Do not pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread for today and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who owe us. Please do not lead us into a test, but deliver us from the evil one, for you have the power and the glory forever. Pray like this three times a day. Which is really fascinating because just prior to the giving of that in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7, Jesus says when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition like the Gentiles. And so we've even turned Jesus' prayer into this ritual of three times daily. So it's very, very easy to sort of get drawn in to wanting to take what God has given to us and add on to it. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 12 because that's exactly what we're confronting beginning this morning. Matthew chapter 12. I've entitled this message, and it will be a series of messages, several parts at least, Dealing with Legalism. Dealing with Legalism, because that's really what we're talking about. In this passage, verses 1 through 14, it is a very, very plain and clear and obvious that, that Jesus refuses to be dominated by the legalistic scruples of the Pharisees. They are trying to, to put him under their scruples, their authority, their legalistic system and understanding, and he refuses to allow it to happen. Yet, if we were to turn forward in the New Testament to Paul's letter to the church at Rome and Romans chapter 14, and there Paul requires us to restrain our personal freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. So we have these, these two teachings. One is that I will not be placed underneath your scruples. And in another place, it says I need to restrict my freedom for the sake of your scruples. So what's the difference? How do you reconcile the, the two apparently conflicting teachings? The answer is it's the issue of salvation. That's the difference. It's all about salvation. It's, it's how a person is made right with God. You need to get to that level because that will determine how you respond. See, if, if the person's scruples directly cloud or challenge the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, then they must be resisted vigorously. Vigorously resisted. 
And that's exactly what we see here in chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel. But if the difference is, is merely a difference of opinion with, a, with another believer, and that, and that other believer, their, their scruples are needlessly tight, then we need to humble ourselves in their presence. We need to restrict our personal freedom. And we need to teach them about the freedom that we have in Christ so that they might come to maturity. That's Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 14. So it very much depends upon what it is that that is at at dispute here. If it's an issue of salvation, then, then nothing can be added. Nothing. And all human additions have to be resisted. But if it's a matter of a difference of opinion between believers, then patience, humility, gentleness, restrictions of personal freedom in public settings, and patient teaching and prayer is the order of business. Now, all of this discussion brings us, I think, to a, to a question that we need to ask and answer, and that is, what is a legalist? What is a legalist? So a legalist is anybody who has a, a, a different opinion than you do about the Scripture. Right? They're illegalists. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. So uh, I'm going to offer this as a definition. As far as I know, it's original with me, meaning I didn't read anything before I wrote this down. But it goes like this A legalist is one who seeks to obligate themselves and others by the addition of non-biblical requirements for the purpose of pleasing man and gaining favor with God. So the legalist is one who seeks to obligate both themselves and others by the addition of non-biblical requirements for the purpose of gaining favor with God and man. The legalist. Now let's take a look here in in chapter 12, set a little context as we delve in. Chapter 12 follows chapter 11. And uh, and that's important to know because the uh, the discussion here in in chapter 12 flows very much out of chapter 11. You know, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? When the scriptures were written, there were no chapter breaks. So you would read directly from the end of what we call 11 right into 12 and you would see the flow. Because when you get to the end of chapter 11, we, we have this uh, section here where Jesus is, is calling individuals out from the nation to follow after him as Messiah. He has been, been for more than a year now in his Galilean ministry preaching and performing amazing signs, confirming his messianic identity. And so that it is absolutely uh, without question, who he is and, and what he is calling the people to. And yet they steadfastly, in the hardness of their hearts, refuse. They prefer the system in which they have grown up, the religious system of the Pharisees, a system characterized by rules and regulations in which every aspect of life is governed and in which you can be ensured of favor with God if you just keep the rules. Just keep the rules. And Jesus, by this time, 
has determined that the nation itself has no interest in him. The nation has refused him. We're going to see later here in chapter 12 kind of the official break. And so he, he modifies his evangelistic appeal from a wide appeal to the nation to a very focused and narrow appeal to individuals to come out from the nation. Verse 28, chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now we looked at last time, what does it mean to be weary and heavy laden? We said it was a it was terminology associated with those living under the Pharisaical system. They were weary of it. They were tired of it. It takes a lot of effort to, to keep the rules. And so Jesus is appealing to them and he's saying, those of you who are tired with this system, come to me and I will grant you the rest that your soul longs after. And so he is, he is setting himself up here and saying, there's them and then there's me. If you continue with them and you're going to continue with weariness and burden and, and a, and a self-righteous uh, system in which you work it all out yourself, or you're going to come to me recognizing that this system is bankrupt, you're going to come to me and you're going to find the rest that your soul longs for. You're going to be my disciple rather than their disciple. So he is, he is contrasting the weary and the heavy yoke of the Pharisees with, with his light and easy yoke. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, gives several illustrations of these competing systems. The weariness, the, the heaviness, the, the, the difficulty of the Pharisaical yoke compared to the ease and lightness of Messiah's yoke. And the focus is the Sabbath. The focus issue is Sabbath law. And what does it mean to rest? What does it mean to rest? So, we're going to begin to look at the passage this morning. And as we begin to look at it together, there are three stages to the narrative. Three stages to the the Sabbath controversy. So we're going to begin to look at these. We'll look only this morning at the first stage. But there are three stages to the Sabbath controversy that I want to look at with you. And I want to do it so that we might refuse legalistic enslavement. So that we might refuse legalistic enslavement and find the true meaning of Sabbath rest. The true meaning of our Sabbath rest. So let's take a look here at stage one. Stage 1 is verses 1 and 2, chapter 12, and I'm calling this stage a a ridiculous discussion. A ridiculous discussion. And the reason I'm calling it a ridiculous discussion is because frequently when you get into a discussion with a legalist, the discussion uh, ends up talking about the most ridiculous minutiae. You find yourself pulled into this thing down to the level where if you can step back from it and you say, what in the world are we talking about? This is insane. It's ridiculous. But that's what legalism does. It is constantly refining and refining and sharpening and adding rules and regulations to define one's relationship both to God and 
to their fellow man. So it's a ridiculous discussion. And that's exactly what we see here. Now, the ridiculous discussion begins with an innocent enough activity, verse 1. An innocent enough activity. At that time, it says, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and to eat. At that time, that's a, that's a connective statement. It doesn't mean that it follows immediately after verse 30 of chapter 11, but it's closely following it. And so Matthew uses that to sort of pull this together. In chap- and the reason he's giving us this here in, in chapter 12 is because he wants to drive home the point between the, the yoke of the Pharisees and, his, and Jesus' yoke, which is light and easy. Mark also uh, handles these controversies, as does Luke. And so between the three of them, Mark and Luke add a few details that Matthew uh, doesn't. And you kind of put it all together and you get the full extent of the controversy. So uh, here it is, simply enough. Jesus uh, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples with him, they become hungry and they begin to pick the heads of grain and to eat. So we find out immediately that it's, uh, that it's on the Sabbath. It's on the Sabbath. Now, according to the Jewish understanding of Sabbath law, a, a person could only travel 2,000 cubits. Cubit is the distance from your elbow to the tip of your finger, about 18 inches. So 3,000 feet was as far as they could go on the Sabbath day. That was what the Pharisees and the rabbis had long ago concluded. And they came to that notion by uh, a passage in Joshua, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where the Lord says to Joshua there that when the ark sets out and the tribes are to follow, they're to wait until the ark is 2,000 cubits out in front of the people, and then the people are to follow after. And so uh, they latched on to that and uh, said that must be God's rule as to how far you can go. And so they turned it into what is known as, in the Gospels, as you read it, a Sabbath day's journey. So when you read about a Sabbath day's journey, it is 2,000 cubits or 3,000 feet. Now I'm going to come back to that here a little bit later because they then modified it later, you'll see. Beyond that, and just some sort of background here, beyond that, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 26, when a person is passing uh, by or through the grain field, the standing grain of, of another, then they are allowed to, by hand, pluck whatever grain they can basically get in their hand. They're not to put a sickle to it, but they can take whatever they can sort of carry in their hand and they can eat it. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 26. This is the way that God provided for the, 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 the day traveler or, or the, what we call maybe the working poor to, to basically get lunch along the way. And it, w- and it would be akin to, to the idea that we would today, if you know, you're walking down the sidewalk and a, a person has like a big orange tree and the, and the, limb, the limb overhangs the sidewalk, you can, you, know, you can reach out, you can pluck an orange and you can eat it. You can't back up your truck and strip the tree. Okay? So it's the same basic idea. We recognize that. And that's what's going on here. It's an innocent activity. 
Matthew records for us that Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're walking along, they're hungry, and so they pick some grain. Commentators are not sure, maybe barley, maybe wheat. It depends on when it occurred. And according to Luke chapter 6 and verse 1, his, his account of it, they're, they're rubbing it together in their hands in order to, to strip off the outer husk, and, and presumably they blow the, you know, the chaff away, and then they would eat the grain. That's the picture. It's a very, very innocent activity, a very, very lawful activity. Cue the ominous music here. Because now what we have is, is, is the legalistic layers. The legalistic layers. But, verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Now, evidently, there, were, there must have been some, some Pharisees either standing around kind of watching, or perhaps they were you know, kind of walking along the same paths. Paths would cut through you know, farmers' fields. We're not really sure, but, but in either event, they're, they're scandalized by the activity that they, they see Jesus' disciples doing, and, and they view it as an opportunity to charge Jesus and, by, by, and charge him with, and his disciples with being lawbreakers. And they, and they relish this opportunity. They are looking to discredit him. And so going to, they charge him here with breaking the Sabbath. And, and breaking the Sabbath is not a small matter. It is a very, very serious offense. A very serious offense. So what is the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? Where did it come from? The word Sabbath, it comes from... A, from a, a Hebrew word that, that means to stop or to cease or, or to rest, Shabbat. To stop, to cease, to rest. It's introduced for us in Genesis chapter 2. So I'll go ahead and turn you back there. Genesis chapter 2. And it is introduced here. Following the the six literal 24-hour days of creation, God ceased, God rested from his creative activities, and and he set aside or set up a pattern for his people to follow. Verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. He, he ceased his creative activity. Then God blessed the seventh day and set it apart. He sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So God established a pattern right here in the, in the week of creation. A pattern of work and rest. And that was to be for the benefit of his people. Now, millennia later, God enshrined this pattern of Sabbath rest, work and rest into the Mosaic law and and cataloged it there as the fourth commandment. It becomes the fourth of the Ten Commandments. So it, it becomes very much a part of the identity of the Mosaic covenant. 
And God does this for, for the purpose of, of providing rest for his people. It's all about rest for his people. It's an opportunity for them to physically rest. It's an opportunity for them to spiritually rest. And it's an opportunity for them to reflect upon the glory and the goodness of God who has delivered them from slavery. So if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is the, the second giving of the law, it's spelled out for you pretty clearly beginning in verse 12. This is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Or Moses says, Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So it's part of the Ten Commandments, and it's, and it's given by God to be a time of rest, and reflection, a time of rest and reflection. Furthermore, we, we learn uh, later in Scripture, and in particular it's spelled out in Hebrews chapter 4, that the Sabbath day is given to point forward to our true and final rest in glory with Christ. So it points forward to our redemption and, uh, and the final overcoming of sin in Messiah's kingdom. Now, God takes Sabbath observance very, very seriously. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36, I'm not going to turn you there, but you can jot it down and check it out on your own. There is, a, there is an Israelite who, who neglects the Sabbath, ignores the Sabbath, thumbs his nose at God and says, I do what I want, and he's out picking up firewood on the Sabbath day, and God commands him to be stoned to death. God commands that the congregation of Israel stone this man to death. Capital punishment for the violation of God's Sabbath. God takes it very, very seriously. Consequently, the Jewish people took it very, very seriously as well. And the historians report to us that uh, during the early time of the Maccabean Revolt which occurred in the 3rd century B.C., that there was a group of, of Jewish men uh, with their wives and children who were, who were fighting the Greeks at that time. And on the Sabbath day, they were surrounded by a Greek army. And rather than defend themselves because it was the Sabbath and they could do no work, they allowed themselves and their wives and their children to be slaughtered. A thousand of them were butchered on the Sabbath day. Now, after that, they, they made some adjustments to the, uh, to the Sabbath law and uh, said that you could defend yourself on the Sabbath. You couldn't initiate a uh, you know, conflict, but if conflict came and was unavoidable, you could defend yourself. 
But, but, and I only mention that because it just points out how, how serious they were about that. They were not fooling around. They were willing to die rather than violate the Sabbath. Very much woven into who they were and their desire to please God. Now, it's probably worth pointing out here that, that there are, at the time of the New Testament, there were essentially four things, four things, I'll stay with that, that, um, that made you a Jew. These four things made you a Jew. And here they are. Circumcision, number one. Number two, Sabbath keeping. Number three, common prayers. That is the 9 a.m. and the 3 p.m. prayer time. And fourth, a a a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the the three feasts. So it was these four things that, that, that defined you as a Jew. Common practice, not common doctrine, made you a a Jew and and set you apart from the Gentiles. And that's how, if you've ever wondered, how can it be that that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who who are so diametrically opposed theologically and doctrinally, how can they coexist inside the religion of Judaism? They hate each other. They believe entirely opposite things about each other. How do they coexist together? Well, they coexist because doctrine really wasn't what drove them. You were a Jew by being circumcised, by keeping the Sabbath, by participating in the common prayers, and by making the once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That made you Jewish. So the, the Sabbath, and I just point that out to you so you can see that the Sabbath, uh, keeping the Sabbath is essential to the framework of Judaism. It's absolutely essential. And the Old Testament is very, very clear. No work is to be done on the Sabbath. But here's the problem. What's work? What's, what's work? So, over the centuries, the rabbis worked it out. Pardon the pun. They figured it out. We all agree, no work on the Sabbath. But what does it mean to work? So, they, they began to figure it out and write it down. And they worked it out in excruciating detail. Ultimately, in ridiculous detail. Emil Schur, in his uh, five-volume work, The History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ, it's one of those uh, things that you put on your bookshelf, you know, it's five volumes, about that thick. People come into my office and they say, have you read all these books? No. What about this five-volume, you know, History of the Jewish People in the Times of Christ? Have you read that? No. But, but I've read like five pages out of it, and here, and here they are. Because <laughs> okay? I was very interested in how they worked out Sabbath regulations, and he details it. So what the rabbis uh, ultimately agreed to is there are 39 separate activities which constitute forbidden work. 39 separate activities that constitute forbidden work. So here they are. Sowing. Plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning, 
warping cloth, making two cords, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing out two stitches, catching a deer, killing, skinning, salting it, preparing its skin, scraping off the hair, cutting it up. Writing two individual letters, not two you know, long letters, just two letters, like A and B. Erasing two individual letters. Building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire. Beating something smooth with a hammer and carrying something from one home to another. 39 separate activities that constitute forbidden work. You can't do those things. And you think it would stop there. But it doesn't. Because for each of these categories now, there's a lot more discussion that has to be had to to sort of elaborate the range of meanings for each of these things. And so over time, it became unlawful for a tailor to carry a needle with him lest he become tempted to mend a garment and thus perform work. So if you're a tailor, you leave your needle at home on the Sabbath. Or it became unlawful for a woman to look in a mirror on the Sabbath, lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. Or it was unlawful to draw a bath on the Sabbath, because some of the water might spill on the floor and wash it. Or, it became unlawful to drag a chair across the floor because its legs might produce a furrow in the ground as you drug them. You know, they kind of scratch the ground and that's a furrow and that's planting and and that's against the law. So, pretty serious stuff. Becomes a ridiculous discussion. Now, it's one thing that's true about legalists is, is they become ingenious about uh, getting around their own regulations as necessity requires. Legalists are very good at this. So with regard to the law, we'll circle back to the law governing the Sabbath travel. Remember I told you it was 2,000 cubits, right? 3,000 feet. So what they, what they came up with is that if you place some food right out at about the 3,000-foot mark, that became a temporary residence. And so you could go 3,000 feet to the food, stop, take a bite to eat, and go 3,000 more. And if, you, and if you go out, of course, you have to be able to come back. So that's 6,000 back. So they figured out how to go more than a mile. Or the prohibition of, of carrying something from one building to another. But if you connect the two buildings with a rope across the street or across the alley, you run a rope from one building to the next, then they become effectively one building and then you can move things within the building. And so that's how it was done. That's how it's done. These are the instructors of Israel. These are the keepers of the law. 
These are the ones who, who define what it means to be righteous. And they're saying that the, the disciples here are guilty of a Sabbath violation. What's the guilt? Because the, the law permits the, the picking, right? The, the rubbing and the eating. So they don't, they don't try to go after them for that. They go after them for the Sabbath violation. Well, what's the Sabbath violation? Well, they're guilty of reaping because they picked some grain. That's, that's now reaping, and that's a prohibited activity. And they're, and they're guilty of threshing, because when they rubbed it together in their hands, that's like threshing the wheat. You know, threshing is, is to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? They run a, a heavy wheel over the, over the grain, and it breaks it down, and eventually the grain separates from the chaff, right? That's all threshing. So by doing this, that's threshing. So that's like strike one is reaping. Strike two, threshing. Strike three, harvesting. Because you're, you're bringing in the grain to eat. It's all prohibited by God. God prohibits reaping, threshing, and harvesting. Exodus chapter 34, verse 21, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. It's in the Word of God. During harvest season, you don't work on the Sabbath. I don't know about you, but that's a heavy burden. That's a heavy. Can you imagine living like that? Under those kinds of regulations, that kind of minutia? It's madness. Reminds me of a story. There's a story told about a, about a children's Sunday school teacher. Children's Sunday school teacher. And she, her lesson for the, for the Sunday comes from Luke chapter 18. And in particular, the, the story that, that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 about two men who went up to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax gatherer, right? You remember this? And the whole time the Pharisee is up there and it says that he's praying to himself and saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax gatherer and I, and I you know, tithe and, and do all of these things. And he just prays his righteousness. And the tax gatherer won't even look up to God. He just stands at a distance, head downcast, beating his breast, just saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the Sunday school lesson. So she, she teaches this whole Sunday school lesson. And then she gets to the end of the lesson, and, and she says, okay, children, now it's time to pray. And let's pray and thank God that we're not like the Pharisee. Think about that. Let's pray and thank God. We're not like Pharisees. See, beloved, because it is really, really easy to mock the Pharisees. It is really, really easy to be, to be critical of the Pharisees. It's very easy to, to look at their way of life and, and say, that is ridiculous. 
ridiculous. How can you possibly strain out a gnat and swallow a camel? Because I'm not like that. And in the process, what we, what we fail to see is, is any reflection of the Pharisee that, that might be in us. When I first came to this passage at the beginning of the week, last week, and I was working through it, and I mean, eventually you figure out what it all means, but then you have to deal with the big topic of how do I apply it? How do I apply this? And, and it would be easy to, to just go through this thing and present it historically, and I think I could do enough research to, to bring forward some historic color here that you go, oh, I didn't know that, that's interesting. Wow, those Pharisees, can you believe that? You know, we'd all walk out of here, and that would be our lunch conversation. Can you imagine living like that? What was wrong with those people? We would just criticize them and, and feel so good about ourselves. And we fail to see how we're like them. They were doing what they were doing out of a zeal for God. Now, it was, a, it was a, a misplaced zeal. It, was a, it resided, as Paul says, over in, uh, in Romans chapter 10. It, it resided in them and not in God. They didn't know about, the, basically forgotten the reality that justification is by grace through faith alone. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness, Paul says, by, the, by, their, by their keeping of the law. But they were very, very serious about it. They weren't messing around. And in the nation, there were only about 6,000 Pharisees, by the way, in the entire nation. But they set the pace. They controlled the synagogues out in the, you know, out in the countryside. The Sadducees controlled the temple grounds where you had to come to, to make sacrifice, you know, at least once a year. But out in the, in the hinderlands, the synagogues were under the domain of the, of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the teachers of the people. And the people looked up to them because they were the ones who had achieved the righteousness that everybody else wanted. Now, there were some that just sort of couldn't make it, and they were cast aside, right? And they're the ones that Jesus spends a long time with. But they were zealous. Now, I want to I resist the temptation to just criticize them and walk out feeling smug. I was telling somebody earlier, I, I don't know, I probably read 20 commentaries. Nobody applied the passage. Well, I'm going to apply it. Hence the sermon title, Dealing with Legalism. Dealing with Legalism. There are ways we are like them. There are ways that we are like them, that that a spirit of Pharisaism lies within our hearts as well. All right, here's the challenge. This week, I'm not going to apply it this week to you. I don't have enough time and i got to get my escape vehicle ready. I want to challenge us, challenge you, me, this week to do some spiritual inventory. To do some spiritual inventory. I I want you to search your own heart and to see any place where you are tempted to go beyond the Scriptures 
in defining what it means to be a good Christian. That's the challenge. You have, a, you have an idea in your mind of what it means to be a good Christian. Good Christians, you know, they don't dance, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Unless you live down south. We all have a notion of what it means to be a good Christian. So, may the Spirit of God enable us to do a little introspection and to think about this. What are we adding on? In what ways have we gone beyond the Scriptures and established our own tradition, our own patterns, our own ways of judging righteousness and unrighteousness, goodness and not so goodness. Because we need to hear from the Word of God in this matter. We are not exempt. We are not exempt. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come to a passage like this and and confess there is a great temptation to to feel a puffed up and haughty, to look down on those who are so obviously wrong, those upon whom the, the verdict of history is recorded in the Word of God has such strong and condemning language. And to sweep away the entire Pharisaical movement and with just a wave of our hand. Father, we even in our day, we, we use it in a, in a pejorative way. We, we say, you're a Pharisee. And it's a way to dismiss somebody. And yet, our Father, the human heart has an infinite capacity to think ungodly thoughts, to do ungodly things, to go beyond the Scriptures and to Add on to the Word of God. And once we have done that, Father, we we use that as a means to sift and sort people, judging them to be good and bad, mature and immature, righteous and unrighteous, desirable and undesirable, our kind of people or not. Our Father, as each of us is an individual, we all individually do this. And so, Father, as we go this week, let us not think so much about institutional legalism here at Foothill Bible Church, although undoubtedly there is some. But let us instead be willing to do the harder work of thinking about individual legalism. Not my neighbors, not my spouses, not my children's, not my parents, not my friends, but mine. May your Spirit search our hearts. May you enable us to have open conversation one with another without being defensive. And Father, as we unfold the balance of this passage and see how Jesus deals with it, May it be instructive for us and 
And may your spirit cause us to grow in grace. We ask it in the name of him who died and rose again to free us from all bondage. In Jesus' name, amen.